0: You may be seated. Well, again, Happy New Year to you, and uh, welcome to the first Sunday of 2009. I'm Camper Mundy, the associate pastor here. And though we are at the start of a new year, we're actually at the end of a sermon series. Uh, What began as an Advent series continues as a Christmas series uh, and we have been in Luke chapter 1 and 2, if, if you've been with us, uh, you remember that. But this week, uh, we're going to move over and, and finish our series in Luke chapter 3. And what we have done each week is we have taken a very close look at some of the people that were present at that first Christmas. Uh, we began by taking a look at Mary, and then Elizabeth, and then Zechariah, the shepherds, last week Simeon. And of course, every week we have been pointing to Jesus, but this week we're going to take a a very focused look on Jesus, uh, ending uh, with the character, with the person who is central to all that has been proclaimed uh, through this Christmas story in the first couple of chapters in Luke. And we're focusing on the person of Jesus today because today... Some of you may know this, others may not. Today is the Sunday known as Epiphany Sunday. Now, some of you think that Christmas is over, but in the life of the church, there are actually 12 days of Christmas. You, you know the, uh, the famed Christmas carol, you sing it, the 12 days of Christmas, and you've probably wondered before, where does that come from? Well, we started with the season of Advent, and then Christmas Eve, then Christmas Day, and then add 12 days And we go all the way until January 6th, which is the day of Epiphany. The Sunday before is the Sunday of Epiphany. Okay, now why am I making a big deal about that? Well, some of you would like to go home and get some more presents, and I want to tell you that Christmas is not over. Um, But seriously, uh, Epiphany means appearance. It comes from the, the Greek word meaning to show forth, to display, to appear. And the Sunday of Epiphany is a day for us to celebrate. uh, To celebrate what we have been anticipating through Advent and and celebrated Christmas Eve and Christmas Day. But celebrating the divine manifestation of God's glory through the Incarnation. God's redemptive activity in Jesus. Now on on the Sunday of Epiphany, the Western Church typically commemorates the visitation of the Magi. Uh, the wise men visiting the child Jesus, uh, God's manifestation to the Gentiles. But the Eastern Church typically commemorates the baptism of Jesus. God's manifestation as the beloved Son of God to the world. And so this morning, I'm going to shake it up a little bit, and we're going to take an Eastern approach. Uh, we're going to consider Jesus' identity as affirmed at his baptism. So we'll take a look at Luke chapter 3, verses 21 to 23. It's found on page 859 of your Q Bible. And what we'll uncover this morning has profound implications for our faith journeys. So please pray with me. Oh God, we need to hear from you today. At the start of a new year, the start of a new week. Uh, We need to hear from you again, just as we do every day. And so we ask that you would open our eyes to see and our ears to hear. And that you would open your word in such a way as to work your gospel deeper and deeper into our very being. Have mercy on us in this way, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So please hear God's word from Luke chapter 3 verses 21 to 23. Now, when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. And Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age. Well, this text has a lot to say about identity, about who one is. And at the start of a new year, many people take stock of their lives. Brandon already mentioned the New Year's resolutions. Uh, but but we begin to look at our lives afresh. And often a question that we are asking, whether explicitly or implicitly, is who am I? Who am I really? Well, a few years ago, when Heather and I were living in Canada, I met a young man named Afshin. Afshin is originally from Iran, uh, and he is—he's a Christian, a follower of Jesus. And as I was getting to know Afshin, he was telling me a little bit about how he came to Christ. Now, I wish I had time to tell you the whole story because it is simply amazing. But Afshin was not always a Christian. Uh, In fact, Afshin was a young leader in a militant Muslim organization that many of you are familiar with, known as the Hezbollah. Afshin was on his way from Iran to the U.S. uh, to participate in terrorist activity. Well, he was going through Malaysia, and the immigration officers searched him, and it was found that he was carrying 30 different passports. 30 different passports. I mean, there were many things that stunned me about Afshin's story. But I do remember thinking how confusing it would be to, to, to have 30 different documents, identifying yourself as 30 different people, and always trying to remember which person you're trying to portray and how you're supposed to act around certain people. And then it struck me. We all do the same thing. How many passports do you carry? I carry a lot of different passports. Now, only one uh, official government document. So I'm I'm <laughs> need to clear that up because I do realize I live where the CIA are trained. <clears throat> but I'm talking, so I'm not talking about those government issued documents of national identification. Rather, what I'm talking about are those self imposed pieces. A personal definition. What defines you? How do you define yourself? Well, I often define myself by a a whole host of things, whether positively or negatively. By my performance, my abilities, my relationships, who I know, who I don't know. By my, my social or economic status. By what other people think of me. And that unstable, unpredictable list goes on and on and on. And frankly, sometimes I get so confused that that I'm really asking the question, Who am I? Who am I, really? Well, we cannot begin to answer the question, Who am I? without first answering the question, Who is Jesus? You know, Jesus never asks the question, Who am I? Yes, His his identity is challenged. We see that throughout the Gospel accounts. But Jesus never has an identity crisis. Even as a young boy, Jesus knew who He was. In the first part of Luke, upon finding the twelve-year-old Jesus in the temple at Jerusalem, Jesus tells a bewildered Mary and Joseph who have been searching for him, didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? Or I love how the the King James puts it, that I must be about my father's business. Jesus is rooted in a singular, awe-inspiring identity. So who is Jesus, really? Well, here again, And really here, listen to God's word from Luke chapter 3, beginning in verse 21. Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. And Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about thirty years old. You are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. A powerful affirmation spoken to Jesus before Jesus even began his public ministry. So who is Jesus? Really? Well here we are in Luke 3. Uh, John is baptizing people in the Jordan River. Jesus steps into the water. He's baptized by John. And then as Jesus is praying, boom, the skies part. The Holy Spirit descends on him in the form of a dove. And a voice from heaven declares, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. So who is this Jesus? Who is this Jesus that as he was praying, the heavens were opened? Well, first of all, Jesus praying expresses a very unique father-son relationship. His relationship, Jesus' relationship with God. But not only that, Luke often records Jesus praying before significant events in his life and ministry. So given that Luke does that here, we should note the high significance of this particular event. And then the significance is highlighted even more by the fact that the heavens were opened. Because Luke, like the other gospel accounts, removes the curtain from heaven and lets us see how God views this man, Jesus. So who is this Jesus? Who is this Jesus that the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove? Now, if you have read the gospel of Mark, which I'm sure many of you have, but if you go back and read Mark's account of the baptism, Mark reports more the experience of the baptism. Luke takes a more objective approach, okay? Luke is a bit more Presbyterian. He is concerned with the reality of the event that it actually happened. And so he uses the phrase in bodily form, in bodily form like a dove. This is to show that it was an actual occurrence, not merely a vision. And the Holy Spirit descending on Jesus is central to this baptismal event. This anointing reveals that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, God's anointed one. Further, this anointing alludes to Psalm 2, for it is a royal anointing, revealing Jesus as King, King of the kingdom of God. Now, you're probably familiar with the story of King Arthur. Uh, Maybe you have read the tales of King Arthur or at least seen a film or had the stories read to you. But uh, regardless of how much or how little you know about the story of King Arthur, I'm sure that you remember what King Arthur did with the sword in the stone. He removed the sword from the stone and that revealed the young Arthur. To be the true king. Well, this anointing reveals Jesus as the true king. King over all creation. King over everything seen and everything unseen. So, who is this Jesus? Who is this Jesus that a voice came from heaven saying, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. Well, this is the first of two instances in Luke's gospel that a voice from heaven addresses Jesus. And if you're like me, maybe you just kind of read over that, a voice comes from heaven. But I mean, think about that for a minute. A voice from above, that could be a bit startling, maybe comforting. Now, I have been told by some of the nursery workers that when my 14-month-old daughter Hope, uh, who's back in the nursery, and sometimes she gets a little cranky and she misses mom and dad, and... So I've, I've heard some of the nursery workers will walk near a speaker and turn the volume up because the, the sermon is being pumped into the room. So all of a sudden, there's a voice from above. <laughs> now, my understanding is that this is quite comforting to hope and actually puts her to sleep, but I'm hoping it does not do the same for you today. <laughs> so it may be comforting. It may be startling. But in this case, with regard to Jesus, it is affirming. This voice affirms the divine commissioning of Jesus. A heavenly identification emphasizing the intimate relationship between Jesus and the Father. So what does this voice declare? God the Father declares, you are my beloved Son. Again, as I mentioned, we have an allusion to Psalm 2 stressing this divine Son. The chosen one to whom all the kingdoms of the world will be given. You are my beloved son. We also... I hear a crying baby. That might be hope. Turn up the volume. (laughs) You are my beloved son. We also have here a beautiful declaration of the passionate love that God the Father has. For this, his son, his one and only son, Jesus God the Father also proclaims with you I am well pleased and here we have an allusion to the servant figure of Isaiah 42 Isaiah 42 begins this way behold my servant whom I uphold my chosen one in whom my soul delights I have put my spirit upon him behold my chosen one in whom my soul delights This is the servant king, Jesus, who will rule all nations. And God is well pleased with him. As we just read, God's soul delights in him. And that's what this phrase means. Well pleased means to take pleasure in, to be glad in, to delight in. Now, I think of parents with a newborn baby. We've got a couple of those Parents already from the past month, month and a half, we're expecting a whole slew of them come April. But the tenants, the Van Stemfords, most uh, recently in this uh, this church giving birth to, to new newborns, and to be with those parents and to see them hold this newborn and to see the joy and delight that they have, it's wonderful to hear. They want to show the child off. They're excited. Okay, this joy... This delight, magnify it by infinity, and we might have the joy and delight expressed here over Jesus. His status is clear, and so is His place in the Father's heart. This is Jesus, the beloved Son of God in whom He takes great delight. Okay, now something that might seem a bit odd. Who is this Jesus that when all the people were baptized, he was baptized too? And Jesus was baptized? Well, what this doesn't mean, this does not mean that Jesus was a sinner. Yes, John the Baptist preached a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, But here, Jesus is not identifying himself as a sinner. Rather, Jesus is identifying himself with sinners. One commentator calls this scene the miracle of humility. Jesus in a river among sinners. Jesus himself taking up the cause of humanity. Humanity's need for cleansing, need for the forgiveness of sin. And Jesus himself later quotes from Isaiah 3 with regard to himself, saying that he is numbered with the transgressors. And as the Apostle Paul explains, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. Again, who is this Jesus that when all the people were baptized, he was baptized too? Well, Luke does something else significant here. And if you're familiar with C.S. Lewis's fame, to The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, uh, this might ring a bell for you. But do you remember how C.S. Lewis refers to the children in the story? The sons of Adam and the daughters of Eve. Well, what, what is happening here is Luke, like the other gospel writers, Matthew and Mark, he tells of, of Jesus uh, I'm sorry, of, of John the Baptist's announcement of Jesus. He tells of Jesus baptism. He tells of Jesus temptation and te- uh, temptation in the wilderness, but Luke does something else here. He does something all the way from verse 23 to verse 38. He adds a genealogy between the account of Jesus bapti- baptism and Jesus' temptation. Now, I see a lot of excitement out there right now that I am taking you to a genealogy. And I know if you're anything like me, you get to these genealogies, and they are so full of names that no one uses today that I don't know how to pronounce, and so we just skip them. But Luke doesn't skip the genealogy. In fact, he puts it in there. Why? Why does he do this? Well, the answer can be found in the last human name on the list. And this is what Lewis, C.S. Lewis, is alluding to. The last name on the list is Adam. You see, Luke's genealogy starts this way Jesus was the son, as was supposed, of Joseph, the son of Hali, the son of Matat, and so on, and so on, and so on. And then ends the son of Enosh, the son of Seth, the son of Adam the Son of God. Luke traces traces Jesus' lineage back to the first human. Okay? Hang with me for just a moment. What he's doing here is he is drawing a contrast between Adam and Jesus, especially with regard to their respective temptations. Okay? Adam, the first Son of God, so to speak, fell into sin when tempted by Satan. We can read about this in Genesis 3. We've inherited this condition of sin, ultimately ending in death. But Jesus, the eternal Son of God, did not fall into sin when tempted by Satan. We can read about that in the next chapter of Luke. Okay, continuing to move through this, this line of thought. In Hebrew, Adam literally means man. Luke is presenting Jesus as the new man, the new Adam who brings new life. Jesus is humanity's new representative. Again, who is this Jesus? Who is this Jesus that when all the people were baptized, he was baptized too? And Luke makes another significant move here. Take a look at the first part of verse 23. Jesus, when he, began, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age. Luke is the only gospel writer to state when he began his ministry. Why does Luke make that statement immediately after the words, You are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. These words of affirmation are spoken prior to Jesus doing anything. It's as if Jesus is a student and receives his diploma before he does any coursework. I chose to use that illustration before the William and Mary students got back, so they would not be too jealous. But think of it this way, those of you that are in the the workforce. It's as if Jesus receives a career's worth of company bonuses and a plaque on the wall before he even starts the job. You see, Jesus' identity is about prior acceptance. And this reality has profound implications for us. Profound implications for our identity, for who we are in Christ. And that brings us all the way back to our original question. Who am I? So who am I that when I was baptized, Jesus was baptized too? Now remember, I pointed out at the beginning, we cannot begin to answer the question, who am I, without first answering the question, who is Jesus? So now that we've addressed the question with regard to Jesus, let's look at it as it pertains to us. When we, by faith, trust Jesus and receive His invitation to new life in Him, We are baptized by Him with His Spirit. In the church, we proclaim new life in Christ through a baptism of water because through faith we are incorporated into Jesus, into His identity. The Apostle Paul points out that Jesus, and I've mentioned this already, is the new Adam, humanity's new representative. In the first Adam, there is condemnation. Because without Christ, we are condemned for our sin. Without Christ, we are identified with the first Adam. But in Jesus, the new Adam, there is acceptance, forgiveness, new life. With which Adam are you identified? Again, Paul explains, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, to be a sin offering for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So that in Jesus we might become what he is, who he is, one who is in right relatedness with God. When we put our trust in Jesus, we take on His identity and we now share in His sonship with the Father. In Christ, we are now the beloved sons and daughters in whom God delights. We are no longer condemned through the first Adam. We are now accepted through the new Adam. Have you put your trust in Jesus? And if so, are you living in the reality Of God's love and delight. In other words, do you really believe that you are loved and accepted by God? Or are you working hard to earn His favor? This might play itself out in the way you continually seek to prove yourself to yourself, to others, ultimately to God. Or maybe you're ridden with guilt or shame. There's repeated failure, and this might play itself out in your sense of worthlessness. You know, I'm sure this morning, if I were to ask for a show of hands, and I'm not going to do that, but if I were to to ask you to raise your hand if you believe God loves you, I think many, if not most of you, would raise your hand. Yes, God loves me. Jesus loves me. This I know, for the Bible tells me so. But I wonder if, if what you really mean If what I really mean, deep down, and and maybe you've never articulated it like this before, I wonder if deep down what you really mean, God, God tolerates me. He puts up with me. Maybe one day when I'm perfected in heaven, when I'm fully conformed to the likeness of Jesus, maybe one day He'll love me. And then those questions, they start flying around in our heads. Am I significant? Am I liked? Am I loved? And like a a starving man, we begin grasping for anything that will fill us. We grasp it from other people. We grasp it for the things that we have or we wish we had. We settle for lies and we turn from the gospel reality that truly defines us. The reality that Though more sinful and flawed than we could ever dare believe, in Christ we are more loved and accepted than we could ever dare hope. So, why do we struggle? Why do we struggle so much to believe this gospel reality? Why do we carry so many different passports? Why do we define ourselves in so many different ways? Why? Because we just don't understand grace. The most beautiful, most radical thing we could imagine. Grace. Rod Wilson, professor, pastor, counselor, talks about grace. And some of you have heard me say this before. But he looks at it as being the relationship between performance and acceptance. And which one precedes the other. Further, he notes that identity must lead and wash over performance. Identity, who you are, must lead and wash over how you live, what you do. And that identity is one marked by prior acceptance. Acceptance before performance. Because Jesus' identity is about prior acceptance in Christ. That is our identity too. So who am I? Really. I am a beloved child of God in whom God takes great delight. In Christ, you are a beloved child of God in whom He takes great delight. Prior acceptance. And we need to hear this good news again and again and again. That we might believe it more and more and more. And that rather than trying to earn God's favor, we would live lives that respond to it. So at the beginning of a new year, Let's hear the good news afresh. You are my beloved son, my beloved daughter. In you I take great delight. Let's pray. Our gracious God, we pray that you would root this truth the truth of your grace in Jesus more and more deeply into our lives. That we might believe more and more. That we might live out of the reality of surrendered lives to you and lives marked by your acceptance and love and delight. Would you convince us, we pray, in Jesus' name, amen.